first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The virus is more patient than people are, and the pressure to let these measures up will be intense, and every time we do, we'll see reintroduction of the virus, and then we'll kind of be back at it again. And so this, I think, is going to have a kind of a persistent uh, drag on the economy for a while. And as you say, our economy is not well suited to that. Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a hard one to open. Things are strange for me, and I'm sure they're strange for you. We are living on an exponential curve, and that is a hard place to be living. Uh, Things are changing at a very rapid speed, much more rapidly than most of us are used to in our lives. I mean, if I go back a week in my own life right now, things were pretty normal. I was covering coronavirus, and I recognized this was going to be a big problem, and I was starting to try to really really get people in my life to, to change behavior. But my work was open. My city was open. There were people on the streets. Uh, I would see people at the gym. I was having to talk people out of going to restaurants. And now I'm in the Bay Area and we are in a shelter in place lockdown. Non-essential businesses are closed. What we are doing right now, it is closer, I think, to living in wartime than anything most of us have been through. And I don't mean wartime the way we've experienced it in forever wars where the sacrifice is falling very sharply on a small percentage of the population. I mean things more like World War II where the economy had to change dramatically to respond, where the way we treated each other, where we would sometimes have periods where people had to shelter in place, and then sometimes you could go about your life semi-normally. It is likely to be like that um, to varying degrees, and some of them worse than what we're going through now for quite some time. This isn't going to be two or three weeks. It's going to be months, um, maybe a year, maybe 18 months. And how we get through it is really going to depend on us on how we treat each other, how much we stand in solidarity with each other, how much we're willing to sacrifice for one another, and how much others are willing to sacrifice and reach out to us. I hope you are doing well, um, and I hope you are being careful, and I hope you are being careful on behalf of the people in your life. And as you'll hear in this conversation, I hope you're being careful on behalf of the people connected to you who you don't know are in your life. This is going to take a much more radical understanding of the way that we connect to each other than we typically have. We don't think of the folks who come into contact with the folks who come into contact with us, but that is how these chains actually work, and that is how contagions actually spread. And so a whole different understanding of our interrelationships is going to be necessary here. 
in order to get through this, we're going to need a lot of good information um, at every level of about what the public response needs to be, the individual response, the epidemiology. And so I've wanted to have Ron Klain on to talk about coronavirus. Uh, Ron Klain, he was chief of staff to Vice President Al Gore, chief of staff to Vice President Joe Biden. And very importantly here, he very successfully ran the Obama administration's Ebola response. So he has coordinated a intergovernment and for that matter, uh, international response to a very, very, very severe disease outbreak with some of the same international dynamics, some of the same interpersonal dynamics. Obviously, Ebola is a very different disease, but he is probably the person in the country with some of the most relevant experience at this at, at this particular juncture. And so this is an important conversation. He's a very clear thinker. He uh, is also, I should say, the co-host of a podcast called Epidemic about coronavirus with Dr. Celine Gounder. But he's terrific. And I hope you give him um, some attention here because what he says about what we need to be doing at the public level, at the individual level, the way to think about disease spread. And then also we we talk a little bit towards the end because he is very likely to be very high up in a Joe Biden administration. He's a very senior advisor to Joe Biden right now uh, about Joe Biden. I think is a useful bit of insight into the way Joe Biden might respond to something like this, the way he differs from Obama uh, and from other potential political leaders. So this is a useful conversation at the moment. They're going to be more like it. And right now, as we are all going through something uncertain and scary, I do want this show to play as positive a role for people as it possibly can. So please email me and Jeff and Roger at EzraKleinShowBox.com and tell us who you want to hear and what kinds of guests you want to hear on the show. Um, of course, we will get infectious disease experts. And if you have particular recommendations there, that's great. But there are going to be a lot of dimensions on this and angles on this that we maybe don't think of that easily. We're going to have a great episode on the economy coming quickly after this one. But tell us what you need to know. Tell us what you need to hear. Tell us what ways you would like to hear this covered. I want this to be part of a solution for people to the extent solution is the right way to think about it, at least part of a constructive conversation. And that I think requires us hearing what it is you need to know and hearing what conversations it is you wish were being had. And we'd like to, to the extent we can, be a home for those conversations. As always, again, that is Ezra Klein show at box.com. Last little bit here and what I know is already a bit of a long intro. The April leg of the book tour, which is going to be in Greenville and Nashville and Chicago has been canceled for now. I will let you know when those dates, if those dates come back online. I'm, of course, sorry about that. And I'm sure you understand why it's happening. All that said, here is Ron Klain. Ron Klain, welcome to the podcast. Ezra, thanks for having me. So I want to start, I usually don't want to tell people when things are happening because you want the podcast to always feel like it is in real time, but things are moving so quickly right now that I do want to say we are talking on Tuesday, March 17th. And I want to know, Ron, in your view, where our response is on this Tuesday? Like where 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 are we compared to where we need to be to get the control we can have over coronavirus? So we're in very bad shape. And we're going to start to see the consequences of that in the next few days in a way that we haven't really until this point in time. So until this point in time, we've had a lot of people saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And I think now we're very near the point where it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. And what does that mean? Well, I think the place where we're going to see this most immediately is in our hospitals, in our medical facilities. Uh, we're already hearing reports of doctors and nurses starting to get sick in larger numbers from treating patients. That means capacity will go down as patient loads go up. We're hearing from major hospitals that they're starting to fill up their emergency rooms, they're starting to fill up their ICUs. 
That's only going to continue to get worse here in the next few days. And this um, conflation of an increase in patients and a lowering of capacity is where I think this will really uh, hit a kind of an inflection point. Uh, now that you know comes, of course, on top of two other problems that we're seeing that we're behind on. The first is the testing problem, which has been covered a lot. Maybe the administration is finally taking steps to make it better. Uh, again, I think there've been a lot of promises and very little action. So everyone should be a little bit of a Missourian on that, waiting to see it actually happen. And then this equipment problem. I mean, you know, already reports of hospitals out of masks, out of personal protective gear, having people not necessarily dress up fully, all these things, using a basic surgical ma masks instead of N95s. Uh, this equipment crush is going to be the other thing that starts to get a lot of attention here in the next few days. I want to draw something out here because it's it was unintuitive to me until I began talking to a lot of public health experts. But I think the way it is natural to think about coronavirus is you think forward from how many people get the virus. And my sense in talking to people like you, but but other epidemiologists and people who have watched things like this play out or watching it play out currently in real time here or in another country is they're actually working backwards from health system capacity. That the, the question is not how many people get the virus, but how many people get it compared to how many can we treat at any given moment. If you this is a whole flat in the curve thing that if the same number of people get it, but it is spread out over a much longer period of time. And so you don't have over full ICUs, or you don't run out of ventilators, the case fatality rate goes way down. So can you talk a little bit about that health system capacity dimension? Because I'm struck by how central it is to everyone I speak to trying to model what is going to happen here. Yeah, Ezra, it's a great observation. And in fact, I start from the premise that for every purpose other than health system capacity, you wouldn't want to flatten the curve. I mean, like, put your economics hat on for a second. From the perspective of the business cycle and the economic impacts, what you'd really want is for this to be like a, a bad snowstorm where it kind of all comes in, everything shuts down for three days, uh, and then like everything reopens and we're all back to normal. And so in some ways, if you were any kind of other policymaker, you'd say, I don't get this flatten the curve thing. Like I want this to hit, be done, and we move on. The problem is that the health system capacity thing is our worst problem. And we run our health system at pretty much full capacity. I think that's understandable if you think about healthcare economics. It makes no sense to build hospitals and have them just sitting empty all the time, particularly build expensive parts of hospitals, uh, intensive care units, ventilators, and just have them sit empty. So we run a hospital system that's very much a capacity. And by the way, without getting into politics here, that's true both in systems like ours and also in more nationalized healthcare systems, different set of economics driving that. But generally, we build healthcare systems to kind of meet the demand. And therefore, it doesn't take a whole lot of extra demand to overwhelm that system. Indeed, you even see it kind of in the day-to-day -day when there's a horrible car crash, you know, a 50-60 car pileup on an interstate. You hear about hospitals kind of getting overwhelmed. That's obviously very localized and very temporary. So something like this, where you're literally having thousands of extra patients in a city, potentially even sometimes tens of thousands, show up in emergency rooms, is going to overwhelm the system very, very quickly. And again, it comes at a time when, ironically, capacity of systems drops. Now, why is that? That's because epidemics hit healthcare workers first and hardest. They get exposed. They get sick. They get even a little bit sick, but we have to take them out because of quarantine so they don't infect others. 
And some hospitals are now doing this preventatively. Some of the largest, most sophisticated hospitals have divided their medical staff into two or three teams and sent the other teams completely out of the hospital for weeks. So they'll have healthcare workers available once the first team or the second team gets infected and has to be taken out of the hospital. So we're in this ironic place where the number of healthcare workers we have as an effective basis is dropping just as the need rises. And then the, the big thing, obviously, is the fixed governors of this. How many hospital beds do we have? How many ICU beds do we have? How many ventilators do we have? These things are very, very hard to flex up quickly and effectively. And they really are the, the reasons why all the graphs on the internet are flattening the curve. That's what's driving this whole thing. So something I want to key in on here is that I think there are two numbers that people have begun to hear about or know about with the virus, which is the reproduction rate or are not and the case fatality rate. And when people hear about this, that the reproduction rates have been something like 2.5, the case fatality rate has been about one, one percentage point. I think what they hear is that this is a scientific property of the disease. But these are things that relate to social behavior, to health system capacities. Can you talk a bit about how those vary? Because I think this is a place where there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, but recognizing that we have some control over those figures is empowering in a way. It is empowering and also a little bit scary and intimidating. So look, let's let's focus for a second on the case fatality rate. The case fatality rate uh, is like the classic story of like, you know, averaging the height of like your six-year-old and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And like the numerical average of that is not really that telling of the average height in the room. So what we're seeing, particularly with this virus, is that very, 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 very few people under 40 have perished from it. Maybe even relatively few people under 50 have perished from it. But when you get the upper end of the spectrum, it's extremely high. So maybe people who are 65, 70, 80, particularly, and over with a couple of complicated health conditions, you know, I think there's some evidence that the case fatality rate for them may be something like 20%. So when we say it's 1% overall, we're averaging a lot of zeros with a few 20s. And that really gives us a tool to understand this. Uh, and that tool is that, that we need to be very careful that the young people who are not really necessarily feeling adverse health effects, who may be asymptomatic, understand that they have to be careful at spreading this disease to older people. Because it's not just we're all walking around with a random 1% chance of getting struck by a lightning bolt here. It's that we know that there are a bunch of people who, if they get it, will die in a very high percentage. 20% is very, very high. And so that gives us a lot of focus on who we need to do the most to protect uh, seniors, particularly you know the older seniors and particularly the sickest oldest seniors, they're our focus for protecting them. And it's also a reminder to those of us who are younger and healthier that the risk here isn't so much to ourselves, but that we become carriers and agents of the thing. So I think it helps create a social mindset about uh, how to approach the disease and how to approach our uh, issues of social distancing and, and self-quarantining and all these kinds of behaviors we want to model. The same thing's true, obviously, to this question of the R-naught and, and kind of the rate of spread of the thing. Um, the rate of spread of the thing obviously depends on how many people we have contact with. And uh, and we can bring that number down significantly by all the different kinds of social mitigation measures that have been discussed. And so I think uh, these things are, are descriptors, not prescriptors. 
They tell us what's happening, but we can change you know, how that happens. If we could protect all of our seniors from getting it, if there's some magical wall we could erect around every person 16 older, that 1% number would drop dramatically uh, because the people who are really getting sick and passing away at a 20% rate would not get sick and not pass away. So there are two things here that I think figure in, which is social trust and social solidarity. For that kind of aggressive social distancing action to one, take place early enough and two, to be sustained long enough, you need for people to trust what experts are telling them. They, they need to act before the virus is visible right around them, right in their community, before things feel completely overwhelmed and in crisis. But also, I think there's been a rhetoric around social distancing, which is all about moral shaming. You know, I, I saw tweets going around saying that, you know, well, all you have to do is stay at home and watch Netflix. Like, how how hard is it really to be a hero? But for a lot of people, they're going to lose wages. They're going to lose jobs. They're going to, I mean, we're telling people to cease economic activity. They're losing their social rhythms and patterns and things that make them happy. Um, this will change the course of their lives. It'll be a trauma. And so we need to be able to sacrifice for each other not just for the people who may get sick because they're vulnerable in that way, but also for the people who might be really hurt by social distancing. So can you talk a bit about the social behavior dimension of this, not just what we have to do, but what we need to have in place and the way we need to feel and relate to each other for this kind of thing to be sustained for as long as it will have to be? Yeah, look, Ezra, I, I want to start first with the people who can't. And so I think we, we, we're having this conversation, particularly on Twitter, about you know, don't be a jerk. Stay home. If I see you out on the street, I'm going to shame you and all these things. And before we get there, let's remember that for every person who is listening to this, who is working at home, there are 10 or 20 people who make it possible for you to work at home by not working at home. The people who are running the electrical power plant and the water plant and the Wi-Fi and the cable and the heat and the people who are staffing the grocery stores that you run out to for your brief trips to get groceries and the drug stores and the people who are staffing the gas stations that allow the people at the drug stores and the grocery stores to drive to their jobs and so on and so on and so on. And of course, the military and law enforcement and all the healthcare workers and the home health workers and the nursing home workers and so on and so forth. So we have to start with the fact that we're in this weird place where for some of us to be safe, others of us are going to go out and continue to do their jobs. And those people are not just the, the obvious people, the doctors and the nurses and the people who we should pin medals on when this is all over, but it's, it's, it's the people who are creating the electricity that allow me to speak into this microphone and you to record it. And, uh, and those people we don't often think of as heroes in our society, but they are. They are all out there doing their jobs and taking some risk on that. So we need to start with an awareness of that. And because those people have to do what they have to do, those of us who don't have to do that, those of us who can do our jobs from home, those of us who can more socially isolate, really, really need to do it. Because even if we're contributing a little bit to the spread of this, we're really adding needlessly to a spread when other people really have no choice but to put themselves at risk and to kind of be at risk of, of, of moving this thing around. And so I think it's um, I think it's important to think about it that way, to think about the fact that you're, you're doing this. You know, not to be competitive here, Ezra, but uh, along with Dr. Celine Gounder, I started, we started a podcast about the epidemic called Epidemic, and we have an episode coming up with Adam Grant, the psychologist, and we we're talking about uh, kind of these behaviors. And one point Adam made to us was that uh, the best way to encourage best behavior is to remind people not to keep themselves safe, but their role in keeping other people safe. And one of the most uh, uh, kind of widely shared pieces of viral content lately was this 
piece of Mel Brooks and his son and the son saying like, I, I'm not going to get that sick from Corona, but I'm going to protect my dad and other famous comedians by not, uh, you know, by not interacting with them. So, you know, we need to think about this as a social project, as something we're doing for each other. Uh, we're going to save the most number of lives by acting the most responsibly because others just can't also. There's a lot in there I want to pick up on, but but, but just on that last point first, uh, and first, how dare you promote your terrific <laughs> podcast that people should listen to here. Um, the First, I want to talk a little bit about that, that, that last point, which is about what it means for those of us who, one, are healthy, so we're not personally at risk, but the thing I hear more often and see more often and can intuitively feel more easily is a sense that not only am I young and healthy, and so I'm not at risk, but I'm not really seeing anybody who's not young and healthy. So how much of a contagion risk can I really be? And there is this great uh, Adam Kucharski is a mathematical epidemiologist who had done some great and very simple calculations on this. So if you take the the disease, you assume it is a reproduction rate of 2.5 over five days. So um, 2.5 people on average catch it from an infected person over five days, which is more or less what we've been seeing. Um, if that's true, then over the course of one month, so six cycles of five days, one infection creates 244. Now, if you bring that down to 1.25, so you have it because they only see half as many people for half as long, then you bring it down to one infection creates four new cases over the course of a month. This kind of exponential math is really unintuitive, but I was talking to him and the thing he was saying that I think is really hard for people to grok is that it's not about you or even the people directly around you. Um, it is also about the chain you start, right? It's about that if you infect somebody and they do have connections, they do go see their elderly grandparent or they do have to go to work because they work at the electrical company or something else, you might not mean to, but the second or third order infections you kick off in that chain, they could be very deadly. But that's hard for people to, to feel, right? Um, if they're going through their daily lives and they don't see people like that, it's hard to imagine in, in our normal life, it doesn't feel like our actions reverberate that far. But the math of contagion is very different than the math of our normal sociality. No question about it. We saw this with Ebola in West Africa when I was the Ebola response coordinator. Was when you went and it would trace where these horrible chains of transmissions came from, where you know, you'd know you find hundreds of people dead in a particular community or a particular neighborhood, a particular place. And it would, it would always come back to some one thing, some person on a scooter who came into contact with some person in this other completely other community and passed it on to them who passed it on to someone else and and so on and so forth and often well I mean I understand it's most emotionally motivating to think about Mel Brooks's son saying I won't give this to Mel Brooks and it's all thinking about our own parents our own elderly friends and relatives but real as you say the real danger here is that I not thinking about it, give it to someone else who gives it to someone else who then gives it to a whole nursing home of, of elderly people who I don't even know. And I think trying to build in that sense of responsibility is very hard. And, and I'll add one other complicating thing here, which is this disease has, compared to others, a relatively long incubation period. So the effects we're seeing today, the effects we're you know, hitting today are from people who were exposed to this thing 14 days ago, two weeks ago. So just stop right now when you're listening to this and think, hey, wh what what did I think the world looked like 14 days ago? What, what was I doing 14 days ago? And that interaction that you had 14 days ago is spreading the disease right now, right here. And, and what you're doing right here, right here is going to affect the disease where it is 14 days from now. And so one challenge about these social behaviors is we're asking people to do radical changes, and we're nearly not going to see the results of those changes for two weeks. And in the meantime, 
you know, in the next two weeks, we're going to see bad things happen because of what people were doing two weeks ago because we didn't make these changes. And that I think that disconnect is going to make implementing all this uh, a little bit harder. I want to go back to the economic side of it, and 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 we'll talk more about the broad economy in a, in a minute. But but within the social distancing dimension, one of the things that is I think quite difficult is we do not have a country marked by a high level of social solidarity in our social policy. We are the only industrialized nation not to have guaranteed paid leave, guaranteed paid sick leave, the only industrialized nation not to have guaranteed universal health care, and a number of other things. We have a stingy unemployment insurance program, et cetera. So now we are asking a lot of people to take actions either uh, voluntarily, as has been the case right now in most of California, or under mandate, as is now the case in the Bay Area in California, of, say, keeping the restaurants half closed, right, only going up to half capacity. But like that might mean the restaurant closes. There are a lot of service sector workers, um, not just people who work in the food industry, but think of a physical therapist or a massage therapist or a yoga teacher or um, a house cleaner or all kinds of different things, whereas these appointments get canceled, they never make that money back. Um, and so there's this way in which we have made it very hard um, before now for people to take a, take a step back from the labor market without having things like their health care endangered. And now we have to ask them to make these very big sacrifices. And this is something I think has been a little weak in the conversation. You're beginning to hear talk of real stimulus plans, and I appreciate Mitt Romney coming out with his $1,000 check idea and so on. But solidarity doesn't just go from the healthy to the sick. It also has to go from the rich to the poor. It also has to go in terms of economics because social distancing isn't going to just be a week or two weeks. It could be on and off for a year for, um, if you look at the new Imperial College estimates for 18 months. And if that's going to be sustainable, we're going to have to almost enter a sort of wartime economy approach where we make these public health measures economically possible for people. And that requires a very radical thinking of what we owe each other economically. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we're just beginning to think about that. I think to date, a lot of the focus, understandably, has been on the very, very short term. Oh, everyone has to go home for work from two weeks. And so we're going to have to have like a two-week leave program. And some employers will pay that themselves. And Congress may mandate it. And Congress is providing right now a payroll tax credit uh, for employers who are paying the leave and so on and so forth. But it's but it's but it's it's very much treating this like it was an extended snowstorm. And after three weeks, it'll all be over and kind of life will go back to normal. And that seems very, 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 very unlikely, no matter how successful these social mitigation measures are. This is going to be with us for in, in the immediate term, I think, for at least six to eight weeks. Uh, and then and then we're going to face these relapses. I mean, you know, I think the challenge is that the virus is more patient than people are. And the pressure to let these measures up will be intense. And every time we do, we'll see reintroduction of the virus, and then we'll kind of be back at it again. And so this, I think, is going to have a kind of a persistent uh, drag on the economy for a while. And as you say, our economy is not well-suited to that. Well, frankly, no economy is well-suited to be shut down for long periods of time. We're seeing it in you know, economic systems all over the world, right? But I think that uh, in particular with its, with its impact, not so much on the macro economy, which is kind of true across the board, but on individual uh, well-being and, and your ability to pay your mortgage and pay your rent and pay your bills if you're out of work, uh, you know, I think that's that's really where it's, it's hitting first, where Congress has taken the first initial steps to address it, but where we're going to need something uh, much more uh, comprehensive and much more uh, long-term, because I think this is going to be with us for a while. 
That line that the virus is more patient than we are, I think is an important line. And I want to hold on it for a minute. So there are a lot of places. I'm in the Bay Area right now, as I mentioned, and we have some of the strictest regulations in the country. We have shelter in place regulations in it happening right now. So all non-essential businesses are closed. Um, and we're basically being told to treat this like there is a hurricane going on for about three weeks at least. That is not going to be sustainable long term. So if it's not sustainable long term, then what happens? Right? What are what are these very stringent quarantine regulations, closing of schools? What do they accomplish if the virus just comes back right after them? And what do we need to do during these periods to make sure we're actually uh, making something of them? So, yeah. So I think there are two challenges. First of all, do people even observe them during the periods and then how long can they hold up? And what will happen is, again, the kind of periodic uh, stemming of the virus and reemergence of the virus. Now, look, from uh, a flatten the curve perspective, we're achieving some benefit, right? So if even if there's incomplete compliance, even if we let our foot off the brake and the virus returns, then presumably we are at least stretching it out and we are avoiding some of these health system capacity issues. Uh, and so this would be what you'd call this, the second, not the ideal scenario, but the second best scenario is kind of intermittent, uh, moderately effective social controls, which will at least somewhat slow the pace and uh, somewhat lessen the peaking. Uh, there's been some studies done. There's one in Science Magazine not that long ago that showed that closing the schools uh, in a particular epidemic, I forget which one, pushed the pushed the curve back to like two weeks, basically. Why? I mean, I see this on my, my block. I live in Washington, D.C., uh, Montgomery County, not far from a public school that is closed. I uh, was uh, out walking yesterday. Uh, the public school playground was filled with kids playing basketball. Uh, so the school's closed. We've taken the step of closing the schools. And then the kids are out there on the playground playing basketball, bumping up against one another. And so, you know, these 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 measures have some effect. I, closing the schools will slow the spread of the disease somewhat. But children leave the house and parents keep them in for so long, but not only so long. And uh, and and then, you know, they start to expose one another. And that's we're going to see some of that. So hopefully we flatten the curve some. Hopefully people are compliant. Hopefully they're more compliant than not. Hopefully they understand we're in this for the long haul. But you know, but everything we're doing is definitely helping. It's just a question of we got to it kind of late. That's one big problem. Viruses, you know, the people were circulating around the Bay Area till yesterday. Now they're not, but they were. That's 14 days of exposures, you know, going forward. And then people will partially but not completely comply. Something you just said there touches on, I think, a question a lot of people have, which is the difference between social distancing and self-quarantine. When you're social distancing, like, can you have two friends over for dinner? Can you go for a walk? I mean, what is your sense of the difference between those two things? Or for most of us, should there not really be a difference between them right now? Yeah. So look, less is better, right? So try not to have your friends over for dinner. And, you know, try if you're going to go for, yes, people can go for a walk six feet apart, blah, blah, blah. But like all these things have risks to them because maybe you think you're six feet apart, but then like you, you, you're, you stop suddenly and all of a sudden your friend's right up next to you. And so I think we have to do our best understanding it's not going to be perfect, but that, that the better we're at it, the safer we will be, the safer the people we care about will be, and the safer we people just don't even know will be. So when you hear Dr. Fauci and others kind of give this advice in this direction and people say, well, it's not it's not as crisp and clear as it should be, you know, but, but when, back when we were doing Ebola, again, I remember being in the Situation Room and having some of these conversations about different kinds of things and people saying uh, that the medical experts like Dr. Fauci, Dr. Frieden and others then 
saying to the president, we should do more of this and more of that, more of this, more of that. And then President Obama said, you know, the, the, the challenge here is that public health thinks in statistics. How much can we reduce risk? How can we lower these things? And the public likes, likes black and white. We like certainty. Uh, we don't like just, oh, a little bit better, reduce it by somewhat so-and-so. We like to know safe, not safe, safe, not safe. And that's not what we're dealing with here. I mean, all of us, uh, unless we are going to seal ourselves in a bubble and not eat and not walk the dog and not whatever, you know, we're not going to be 100% safe. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do every single thing we can do to slow the spread of the disease for ourselves, for our families, for people we don't even know. And that's a challenge, right? This is a statistical risk-based challenge, and that's just kind of not how our individual brains are wired. Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative, Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Is there a world where we got the initial response to this more on point? And so we didn't have to do these extreme society-wide measures? We can talk about and we should talk about some of the public failures we've had here. But if we had gotten contact tracing and testing and so on right from the beginning, how different would the day-to-day worlds that many of us are living in today be? Well, of course, it's it's hard to know that for sure. But I certainly think uh, it would be a lot better for this th- these reasons. I mean... Con- uh, testing and contact tracing is obviously the preferred public health solution, and it works if you have a discrete number of chains of transmission. And the challenge here is that when the disease is coming from a highly populous nation that we have a lot of interactions with, like China, isolating discrete chains of transmission is very, very, very difficult, right? But certainly we would be better off if we had had testing a month and a half ago or even a month ago in large numbers, if we were able to really have visibility to where the disease is, if we had some chance of isolating people who are spreading it and isolating their contacts. And the fact of the matter is we're living in a world today where that really isn't possible, where there's so much of this virus around right now and it spreads so much that pretending like we could identify particular contact, uh, identify particular chains of transmission at this moment seems overwhelming and almost impossible given the limited public health resources we have in terms of contact tracers and whatnot. So was it possible if we had been on top of this in January? Certainly to some extent, yes. Uh, Certainly to a greater extent than we're seeing now. Might we still have to do some of these things? I think we have to admit we might have had to do some of these things, but I think uh, we would be doing them less. And, And more importantly, they'd be more successful because we could also target geographically our efforts, target to particular communities our efforts. This thing has just spread everywhere before we were looking for it adequately. And that's that's a that's a big problem. I mean, even today, even on March 17th, you know, 165 identified cases in Massachusetts is a ridiculous number that shows how poorly we're testing when clearly there are thousands of cases. And so, you know, each of those thousands of cases is creating thousands more cases. We just don't even know where we should be looking or what we're supposed to see. 
Tell me about that testing failure. What what went wrong here? Well, I think, Ezra, we're just starting to learn what went wrong here, but I think several things went wrong here. I think that the mechanical things that went wrong here, the decision not to use the WHO test, which President Trump and Dr. Burks, Burks defended today in a press conference saying the WHO test was no good, even though it's being used around the world successfully. We're going to need to really understand that. Today was at least the first admission that it was a conscious decision not to use it based on some theory. I'm not really sold on that yet. Then there was the decision for, as the CDC developed its own test, some things went wrong on that. Clearly, that test was not effective. It had to be scrapped or abandoned. There were regulatory disputes between the CDC and FDA about approving other tests. And uh, still, to this day, we're having some problems getting these these tests out there. So I think I think there's a, there's a bunch of these kind of technical issues, but I also think, frankly, Ezra, there is a leadership issue here on the part of President Trump. It's impossible to have been a senior bureaucrat at the CDC and the FDA and not to get the message from the president that he didn't want us to find cases. He was walking around saying there were only 15 of them when we knew there were more than that, that the 15 would resolve down to five very quickly, that this was just a flu, there was nothing to worry about. And I will tell you that from having run large projects in the government, when the president of the United States stands on top of his table and says, this is super important, super urgent, and everyone must do this, the government works moderately effectively. That's the best case. When the president's standing up and saying, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to know about it, this doesn't really exist, well, then you're definitely not going to get effective work from the government. And that's what we've seen for the, uh, you know, really until recent days, the president just basically doing everything he could to downplay this problem, to say it isn't really a problem. Uh, and I think that definitely had an effect on how the agencies handled this. If Donald Trump had called you when reports of the disease first came out of Wuhan sort of in December, I think it was, of last year, what would you have advised him to do before it felt it felt like a pandemic to people, before there was a society-wide mobilization? What would you have told him? Well, first, I would have told him that he had to put someone in charge at the White House. So I think the first phase of mismanagement of this was we can go back to this decision back in 2018 to disband the pandemic prevention unit inside the White House. I think that was a bad decision. But having made that decision in December, he should have reassembled that unit and put someone in charge. And again, uh, the explanation, that's pretty clear. You need someone who's driving action on this every single day, who's coordinating all the different agencies of government. They treated this like this was an HHS problem. First, there was no coordination. Then they created this task force and put Secretary Azar in charge of it. The problem is Secretary Azar can't make other parts of the government move. And so you saw this completely botched situation where they brought these people back from Wuhan and the State Department and HHS and CDC were fighting over how to handle it. And as a result, no question we had introduction of the virus into this country and spread in Washington state as a result of of that. And we also, uh, because we didn't really have White House coordination, didn't really get the answers we needed out of China early enough. In the month of January, the very first press conference the task force had, Secretary Azar said, hey, we, we called China looking for answers. They don't really want our people on the ground, so on and so forth. Well, that, that should have been escalated right away to the president calling President Xi and saying, hey, we got to have people on the ground there. We got to have eyes on the ground there. We got to have data from the ground there. So I think the biggest problem was, I mean, let's let's roll the tape back this way. President Trump says he deserves credit for imposing these travel restrictions on China early. And travel restrictions can be helpful. Uh, I know that's kind of an unprogressive thing to say, but it's true. They do help. 
But the problem here was two big things. One, the travel restrictions were very uneven and very inconsistent. Shipments of goods were exempted from the travel restrictions. The crews bringing goods in. We were bringing iPads in from China, and the people driving the boats were Chinese, and they weren't restricted at all. And, and you know, there's still a lot of flights going back and forth, all these things. So the travel restrictions were, were always going to be imperfect. And then secondly, what they bought was some time, and the administration did not use that time that it bought to fix these problems. So what I would have said to the president in December or January is, we are going to have a problem in two months. Let's make a list of the things we have to do. Get the testing things fixed. Figure out how we're going to add 500 hospital beds in 24 hours in New York or San Francisco or Chicago. How we're going to get a surge up medical personnel, perhaps from the military or from the National Guard or whatever. You know How we're going to do all these things. Let's build a list of tasks. Let's execute against that list every day with someone at the White House holding the agencies accountable. And we lost January and lost February to that. And in retrospect, those two lost months are going to have had a huge impact on the course of this thing. My sense from my reporting on this is that what was happening in President Trump's mind, uh, alongside some bad advice, it seems that Jared Kushner was telling him this is like just the flu, it's being overblown. But was a, a generalized belief that if people heard about this, it would be bad for the markets, bad for the economy. Things that are bad for the economy are, depending on how you want to think about his motivations, bad for the American people, bad for him. And so he didn't want that. He he wanted to sort of message that things were fine. We are going to come in now to a time when they're obviously not fine. The economy is in utter turmoil now. Markets have lost a third of their value. I mean, it's it's been brutal. And we are going to see some real trade-offs here between how much do you clamp down on the public health measures and how much do you try to keep some level of economic uh, activity sustained because that has health effects, it has public health effects, it has emotional health effects, it has effects on people's long-term life chances. When you all were thinking about this in Ebola, how did you balance that question of economic and public health trade-offs? Well, first things first, I want to say something about the way Trump thought about this, you know, Ezra, he has gotten away for three years with very short-term thinking. And the, you know, chickens never come home to roost. I mean, I can imagine the Trump White House that almost every day for three years, someone has come into him and said, hey, you have to do it this way. This is the way it's done. We need to be prepared for this. And he would say, nope, going to do it my way. And kind of he's gotten away with it. And so not a surprise to me with three years of training in that, that when they came to him, uh, when either Dr. Fauci or Dr. Messonnier or Dr. Redfield came and said, hey, look, this one could be really bad. He thought, like, I'm going to trump this one like I trump everything else. And now we're all paying the price for the fact that his general method of proceeding uh, is not effective for a president. And we finally found one that he can't kind of just blow past or tweet past or you know, Sean Hannity is way past. Like the reality of this is too powerful and 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 too overwhelming. And so, you know, habits get made, and that's and that's and that's what happens here. I think on a going forward basis, in the end, what will be best for the economy is if we do what's best for, best for people's health. I think having this thing kind of somewhat wane and then come back, and somewhat wane and then come back, and, and making it almost endemic. You know, it was just going to be really devastating for all kinds of things. And so I think the best thing is to bite the bullet as hard as we can to try to extinguish it to the greatest extent we can and then, you know, to move forward from there. You know, in terms of West Africa in 2014, uh, this was less of a domestic issue for us because it's never really became a big economic thing in the U.S. and more of a thing working with the West African countries where um, uh, similarly you wanted to try to balance the fact that you couldn't let their economies collapse 
that would uh, incapacitate their ability to fight a bull itself and fight other things. But you you had to do major steps to control the disease. And uh, there it's a little easier. A bull is much less infectious than the coronavirus. Uh, the r not you were talking about before is basically one with Ebola. The average person infects maybe one other person. And if you are particularly careful around burials, you can really bring that down. Um, but, uh, but, you know, one thing that was very important then was actually keeping air service to and from Africa going because otherwise the economies really would have collapsed. And, and so the real trick there was to balance, uh, you know, keeping the lines of flow open without uh, risking spread of the disease. And that, again, a little easier by getting on top of it early, having contact tracing for anyone who came from West Africa, uh, being able to uh, isolate people before they were sick. Ebola doesn't spread asymptomatically like this virus does. So if you if you got people before they got sick, you could keep them from spreading the disease if you could isolate people. So, you know, much more lethal disease among the people who are sick, but a little easier to manage from a public health perspective in, the, in this way. Um, so, uh, but this is this is a challenge, no question about it. One of the other difficult things you had to deal with in Ebola, in some ways it feels even more difficult than here, is that you had to surge healthcare system capacity in West Africa, where there was a lot less structure to build upon and where to the extent that the U.S. had resources it could mobilize, it was having to project them much further out. What did it teach you about how to surge healthcare capacity here in America right now? If we need more beds, more ventilators, more ventilator operators, how fast can we actually do that and where can we draw the resources, both material and personnel from? You know, Ezra, it's a really interesting, it was a really interesting case study for me in healthcare, comparative healthcare systems. And we're going to see both the strength and the weakness of our system here unfold in the next few weeks. So let's talk about the weakness first. Uh, when I was coordinating the Ebola response, every week I'd have a call with my counterpart from the United Kingdom, who worked on the equivalent of the NSC for the United Kingdom. And uh, and we had taken an informal decision that we would kind of try to beef up the healthcare system in Liberia, and they would do Sierra Leone. Liberia had longstanding historical ties to the U.S. Sierra Leone was a former British colony. And so every week we kind of update each other on how those things were going. And he would say, well, we sent another 100 doctors to Sierra Leone this week. And I'd say, how do you do that? So I called up the National Health Service. I said, we need 100 doctors. And the NHS sent 100 doctors. And he would say, how did you do? I said, well, we sent 100 doctors. Well, how did you do that, Ron? Well, we called this healthcare system. We asked them for three. We did a big conference call with all hospital administrators. We asked them each to send one. We did a call with Catholic charities. We saw what they could, blah, 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 right? And every week there was a certain smugness on the other end of the line about how much easier this was for them. Then in December, one National Health Service nurse from the UK contracted Ebola. She came back to the UK with Ebola and their union voted to send no more people. And because they have a unitary healthcare system with a single union and a single provider, uh, when they made a decision to send no more people, they sent no more people until they got that resolved. Whereas in the US, if we had a particular healthcare provider drop out of our program of sending people to West Africa, that was just one provider out of many, 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 many providers. And so our system is much harder to mobilize, much harder to mobilize, but much more resilient and much less vulnerable to the failure of one particular institution or one particular set of institutions. And we're going to see that play out, I think, here over the next few weeks. I think if you were in the UK, this idea that we heard this week from President Trump, that like each state should find its own ventilator, should find its own PPE, should find its own mask, and kind of 50 states on their own, all banging on private 
you know, suppliers, all making phone calls, all checking on Amazon, whatever they're doing to try to get this stuff would seem crazy to people in the UK. And it is crazy. And that's not what should happen. We should have centralized supply chain control in a crisis like this. But I will also say that we're going to see that uh, failings of one particular system, one particular area, uh, other areas will be strong and maybe hopefully can help out each other. And uh, and uh, and so, you know, our, our system, our system here has a lot of resilience to it. It's it doesn't have one central point of failure uh, that will make that will that will hit some places very hard, but will allow some places hopefully to step in and help out when the places that are hit hard are hit hard. But much harder to mobilize sounds like a scary weakness when you're on an exponential growth curve that is moving very fast. It, no, no question about that, Ezra. Much harder to mobilize is is a is a problem for us. And again, this coordination thing is a problem. The idea we have fifty states individually chasing uh, fifty different supply chains for fifty different things it means I think you know next phase we're going to see this is we're going to wake up tomorrow or the next day or the next day and we're going to read a story about one hospital in one place. Uh, with the, where the doctors have no personal protective gear, no masks, no gloves, and another hospital, another place where there's a storeroom filled with these things up to the ceiling, you know, and and whatever, or one place with no gloves and lots of masks is one place with no masks and lots of gloves. You know, th- that's what this kind of highly decentralized system uh, tends to produce. The UK and the US are one comparison point, but I want to talk about China and the US. So there are some real issues in the way China initially responded. It seems like they um, underreported what was happening, maybe covered some pieces of it up, which we've seen before. But once they got serious, they basically created an authoritarian police state quarantine. They seem to have locked down basically 800 million people. They have 675,000 people being contact traced. I mean, it is a suppression response of massive scale. And it seems to have brought the curve, uh, reverse the curve, right? Their curve seems to be going down. They they stopped it at 90,000, whereas Italy is still going up, both from the public health question and just in terms of geopolitics. Are we seeing a strength of authoritarian systems against more liberal democracies? Well, I'm going to admit to my biases here. I'm a big fan of liberal democracies. And so, but, but, but I think the answer to that's no. So first of all, we need to be careful not to, take the Chinese success too literally yet. We don't really know what's going to happen as these social controls are lifted. We don't even really know what's happening in China now. I think the information is unreliable. I think reports of the Chinese success may be overstated. And even if not overstated, its duration and durability is difficult. That's the first thing I'd say. And so let's just see. I think that there's no question that the bad things about the authoritarian system, the lack of transparency, the lack of honesty, the lack of candid and accurate media reporting uh, made this thing much worse than it had to be. And I think if something like this had happened in a city in the U.S., there's a starting point. We'd had clear, honest, and open trans communications about it from local officials. Uh, we would have gotten on top of it much sooner than the Chinese did. So I think there are obviously some of the weaknesses of their system have, have played out. And I also think we have to be careful not to correlate all the successes to the authoritarian system. Uh, Singapore, which has done a much less had much less authoritarian kinds of controls, has also done, a, a, has I think pretty clearly done a very effective job of turning this around through very aggressive testing and strong testing and contact tracing, traditional public health measures that don't really involve authoritarianism. So I think there's a little bit of like, you know, logical fallacies going on here, hanging it all on the on the authoritarian thing. And then there are just cultural things too. Look, forget about our political system. There's no question that the fact that we take care of our elderly in the United States, 
by cramming them in to crowded nursing homes as opposed to keeping them in our own homes. It has created these zones of high danger, of concentrated danger. In these nursing homes, even in a good year, flu spreads pandemically inside a nursing home, not pandemic, epidemically inside a nursing home and knocks off a lot of people. Uh, and so the social structures of these countries are different. And as a result, there are going to be different implications for how this disease plays out in these countries, ir irrespective of political system. How do you rate the chances of vaccine development here? or some other kind of pharmaceutical treatment? The chances of both are, in my view, are 100%. It's just a question what the timeline is. So we'll probably see, uh, already there's a lot of work on uh, therapeutics uh, developed earlier for other illnesses being repurposed for this uh, purpose of fighting this disease. That's certainly what worked with Ebola. We took things that were on the shelf and started throwing them at Ebola. We found a few that worked pretty well. And it, you know people forget that when we started in West Africa in October, uh, when I came in, when the effort got underway, uh, I don't mean to take credit for it myself at all personally, but when the effort was launched, uh, you know, we, about 70% of the people who got Ebola in West Africa died. By uh, February, March, that number was down to 30% because we learned a lot about how to treat Ebola and ramped up our capacity. Part of that was logistics, but part of that was medical sophistication around things like ZMAP and other drugs that were uh, already existing drugs, weren't starting from scratch, but hadn't been used to treat Ebola before. And I think you're going to see that here uh, already in China and other countries. They're experimenting with different treatments. And my guess is we'll see, uh, you know, in the next couple of months that we develop some things that help somewhat. We'll have to see what and how much. The vaccine is starting from scratch. Now, the good news is it's because of improvements in science, it's moving super quickly. We have already begun testing a vaccine candidate uh, 65 days after the uh, first case here in the U.S., after sequencing the, I'm sorry, sequencing the virus. 65 days later, we have a vaccine that we're already test, being testing in the U.S. And there it's a question of how long it takes to test it and to produce it. And testing it means making sure first it's safe. We can give it to people without making them sicker. And then effective, does it actually prevent people from getting and transmitting the virus? And you have to, it, that takes time. There's no shortcutting that. We don't know if it's safe in people till we give it to them and see what happens to them. We don't know if it stops the virus till you give it to them and see if the virus spreads. And so that's going to take a while, uh, months, not weeks, months. And then you have to produce it. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to get their heads around. For the vaccine to be any good, there have to be millions and millions and millions of doses. I mean, if I vaccine one out of every thousand people, you're not really helping stop the spread of the disease. You have to create herd immunity by vaccinating a lot of people. And it won't surprise you that we don't have vaccine plants that can make this vaccine just sitting around making nothing, waiting for a crisis to make vaccines. And so you're going to have to either expand production in existing plants or divert production and the things we make vaccines for are things we need to vaccinate people for. We're not making vaccines just because they're fun or amusing. So you, 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 we have to continue to vaccinate children for MMR and DPT and these other things we vaccinate them for. And we need to make a flu vaccine because if we don't make a flu vaccine, people will die from the flu next year. And so, uh, you know, so, so both uh, testing and manufacturing this vaccine will take months. Uh, Dr. Fauci said 12 to 18 months. Uh, I, yeah, that would be very, very, very fast. And so uh, we have to be realistic about that. What you just mentioned there seems to me to be an under-discussed part of all this, which is the way in which you are potentially going to have a lot of fatalities from things that are not coronavirus, people not going to the hospital when they have chest pain, say, because they don't want to be there uh, amid something infectious and dangerous for them. 
people who, if we scale up uh, production in one place or we make people stop going to work in another, that they you know aren't able to get something they need. How should we think about balancing some of that? I've already seen people worrying that we might cause so much harm from trying to stop the coronavirus that it outweighs the benefits of the measures we put in place without assuming that the trade-off is out sharp. Just how do you how do you think about weighing this given that there's so much fear on one side as we become and we are more accustomed to even quite bad risks on others? Well, Ezra, that's a great point. And in fact, in West Africa, even in the height of the worst Ebola epidemic in history by a large factor and the global scare over that epidemic, malaria deaths went up more that year than Ebola deaths. Uh, Childbirth-related complications went up significantly that year. Why? Because first, people didn't seek medical care because they were afraid of getting the disease by going into the healthcare system. And secondly, the healthcare system lacked the capacity to attract these other things. And you had the loss of healthcare workers in the case of Ebola to death, as we're seeing already from coronavirus to kind of being taken out of the system for two or three weeks at a time. And so, you know, we are definitely going to see deaths from other things go up and a lack of treatment from other things go up. And first, obviously, people are going to first get their elective surgeries postponed. Presumably, if they're elective, hopefully that means they can go without them. But there'll be consequences from that. Uh, Next, as you say, people will not seek medical care, or if they go to seek medical care, uh, they will find that medical care not to the quality it usually is. Uh, The wait in the emergency room will be longer. The um, amount of doctors to treat someone will be down. The focus of those doctors will be down because they'll be doing other things. So, uh, you know, I think it's very important when we talk about all the reasons why we need to control the spread of this disease. In some ways, it's, of course, first and foremost about the spread of the disease itself, But it's also because uh, medical consequences from other things will go up as coronavirus goes up. Uh, And particularly if you look at look at what's happening in Italy now where the hospitals are so full, they just can't take patients at all. That means they can't take patients at all. It means if you are outside walking by yourself, completely by yourself, social distance perfectly, but you fall down and break your leg, your ability to get treated for that broken leg is going to be a lot less than it was a week ago. And, uh, and that will have consequences, of course. On the economic side, let's talk a bit about what economic response would make sense here. So you were Vice President Joe Biden's chief of staff at a time when he was charged with overseeing the distribution and oversight of a fair amount of the stimulus money. And so having been involved in that effort, which was also uh, a, a very rapid effort to disperse a lot of money at a time of incredible economic need, what did you learn that you would advise current policymakers to to put into place as they design a stimulus to respond to the economic damage of coronavirus? Well, I learned a couple of things. I learned that um, psychology, as much as economics, is at play. And I think that um, I think part of the problem with the Recovery Act back then was it was it was a highly complicated piece of legislation, and it was hard for people to understand. And some of the things that the economists liked the most, like state and local fiscal relief, uh, the public resonated with the least. And so I think it's important for the recovery, whatever long-term stimulus efforts or short, medium-term stimulus efforts. So that's putting aside for a second the the immediate effort to get people paychecks and not get evicted and and deal with their childcare needs. As we talk about not just responding to the disease itself, but responding to the economic boom that it's causing in our economy, 
you know, you, you have to think hard about what is it that's going to create the psychology that will get the economy growing again that people can really identify with and relate to. Uh, so, you know, obviously some of the discussion about direct cash payments to people like Senator Romney has 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 put out there uh, or or other kinds of assistance that are, that are easy for people to understand. They understand the consequences. They understand what their economic impact is supposed to be. I think also you have to preserve credibility. And I think we, you know, we tried very hard with this in the Recovery Act and proud of the policies we enacted. I think by and large they were good. But I think right now what we're talking about, bailouts of certain industries, will those industries act responsibly? Will that money be used the right way? Will it just enrich executives? I think we, we're at a time of uh, not only just a populist time, but a time of great skepticism. And I think these these programs have to be transparent and the public has to really understand what's happening. And so, you know, the most common thing I used to hear, hear back in 2009, Ezra, was, uh, you know, we, we bailed out Wall Street, we didn't bail out Main Street. And we should have bailed out Wall Street probably less than we did, although all the money that President Obama put into these programs was all paid back with interest. So the taxpayers got their money back on a lot of these uh, programs that went to institutions. But more importantly, Main Street never realized it got help. The help wasn't in the right fashion, perhaps, or at least not well explained. And uh, and so I think, you know, you you you... you since part of this is about changing people's psychology about what's going on in the economy as much as it is about changing the economy. And of course, you know, first and foremost, it is about changing the economy. It is about getting help in people's hands. It is about helping the people who need it. You know, you just have to also think about how these programs will be understood by people, how they'll be implemented. These are all these these challenges policymakers are gonna are gonna face. I think what's different this time, though, is this. Congress is right to focus on these economic stimulus questions. But first things first, we are in the middle of a healthcare crisis, a medical crisis. We need to get that right. And then people have immediate economic needs. Uh, no matter what kind of stimulus you do, if someone is forced to stay in their house, they're not going to go out and go shopping and stimulate the economy. They're not allowed to go out shopping and go stimulate the economy. So keeping people safe and getting people to be able to pay their basic needs, their grocery bill, their rent, their mortgage, their utilities, all these things, you know, that's that's the most urgent uh, focus. And I think then thinking about these other things comes next. The other criticism here of the stimulus to this day is that it was simply too small. And some of that came because the initial calculations uh, for how big it should be, which were made by Jared Bernstein and Christina Romer, just we're using data that turned out to be uh, overly optimistic. And so the size of the output gap was small. And then the other is that it was hard to get it through Congress. People argue about why that was and whether or not it could have changed. But but putting that aside, how would you advise policymakers? And I know you're advising um, Joe Biden. How would you advise him to think about sizing a stimulus here? Because even if the recession data in 2009 proved to be optimistic, we at least had some of it. This is moving so quickly, and it is such an out-of-bounds kind of problem that we have almost no data for how big this is going to be or how much you're go- or how much of an output gap you're going to have to fill. So, you know, you're seeing proposals for a $1,000 check, a $2,000 check, a $4,000 check, a check that renews, a check that doesn't renew. How do you think about just figuring out how big the thing needs to be? Well, look, I think the answer to that, Ezra, depends on how much both sides are willing to work together on this in this, in this way, which is... I tend to get defensive about the initial decisions we made in the administration. I think they were the right decisions based on the evidence we had. And But the problem wasn't, I think, that the initial stimulus was too small. The problem was that when we realized we needed more stimulus, Congress refuses to give it. And so I think it's important to try to avoid a situation where this is a one-time choice that we need to make now with imperfect information that isn't subject 
to revision as the data and facts change. And so in fairness to my colleagues in the Obama administration, by the fall of 2009, when we recognized that the measures we'd put in place were not moving as quickly as we wanted, uh, we did go to the Hill and we asked for additional stimulus and couldn't get it. And that was a product of intransigent Republican opposition and some a handful of Democrats being uncertain about it. And so I think, look, I think that uh, if we can get into a rhythm here where people understand that we're doing these things as we learn them, that we're uh, you know facing these problems one problem at a time and that we're going to keep on working on it, I think that's great. If if there's some fear that this is kind of Congress is going to take one bite at it, then it's important for it to have a series of kind of toggles and switches. And if, uh, you know, a certain a couple of proposals out today that said, like, basically look at each quarter's GDP and adjust up or adjust down, have certain things be contingent. I think all those mechanisms could be put in place to do that. But what I think what's kind of implicit in your question that I think is the fairest observation about all these things is it's going to be absolutely impossible to get this right for the next 12 months today. And we're going to either miss too high or too low. It's going to be worse than we think or not as bad as we think. It's going to have impacts we can't even imagine. And, you know, the most important thing for policymakers to retain is some flexibility to continue to revisit it and improve and target the responses. You worked as chief of staff for Vice President Al Gore in the Clinton administration, then as chief of staff for Joe Biden in the Obama administration. You worked as Ebola czar in the Obama administration. You're advising Joe Biden now. I recognize I have you on and not advisors to, to the other candidates, but but I do want to ask you, given that you've seen this in, in, a, in a number of contexts, for people thinking about Joe Biden, who seems to be uh, pretty heavily the front runner for the Democratic nomination now, what is he like in a crisis? What is it like to work with him when things are changing rapidly, when there's a lot of pressure? Um, those of us who watch from the outside, we see him in debates. We see him give speeches. Um, we see sort of the public facing Joe Biden, again, recognizing and, and people will know that, you know, you're you're sort of on the Biden team. What should people understand about him in these situations in internal meetings? It may not be fully evident from the from just public facing campaigning that most of us get to witness. Well, first, I want to start by saying that um, I am on Team Biden, but I you know, think what Senator Sanders has said about the coronavirus response has been very strong as well. And I think a lot of his comments and insights about the economic approaches here are very uh, strong, too. And so I, I, I don't mean to be uh, you know strictly partisan here in terms of being a Biden partisan. Obviously, there are differences about how to handle health care issues and whatnot. But, you know, I, th I think a lot of what they uh, a lot of their thoughts on this are, are similar. And so I, I want to start off by acknowledging that. I'd, I'd say what Joe Biden brings to this uniquely is a life experience of tragedy and triumph. And, you know, the most important thing in a crisis situation is to keep your cool. And when you have someone who lost uh, their wife and their daughter in a car crash a few weeks before he took office, who later in his life uh, faced a, a possible, you know, deadly illness with his aneurysms, uh, still later uh, lost his son uh, to brain cancer. Uh, he's seen a lot of very, very dark days. And that always had him cool and calm in very difficult situations. There'd be times, particularly during the uh, economic crisis in 2009, 2010, where you'd walk into the Situation Room, where you'd walk into the Cabinet Room or the Roosevelt Room in the White House, and people would be kind of pulling their hairs out. And Biden would be at the table, very level-headed, because he had seen darker days. I mean, maybe not for the whole country, but for him personally. And I think that gave him a sense of perspective 
a sense that for every dark day, there was potentially a bright day in the future, and the kind of steady, calm leadership in, uh, that, that you want in this kind of circumstance. And that's, you know, that's, that's what I saw as we fought through things in the White House, whether it was uh, implementing the recovery or fighting for the Affordable Care Act or the auto bailout or other things. Uh, you know, Joe Biden never let the, the good days get too much to his head or the bad days get him down too much. He was a, a steadying influence. And I think that kind of calm, steady leadership is something people are looking for, particularly in a juxtaposition to Donald Trump. Uh, I think, you know, we have a, a president who just seems erratic and tweets crazily and says horrible things. And, uh, you know, was one, you know, at, at five o'clock is having a press conference where he seems like he's a normal person. And three hours later is out there tweeting garbage at ma- governors of major states that I think really helps unsettle things. So, look, I think it's, it's interesting with the coronavirus, we're seeing uh, both a lack of competence in the administration on these things we've talked about, Ezra, testing and hospital capacity equipment, and then confidence. You have the spectacle where almost every time the president speaks, the market goes down. People hear him and they get more and more nervous at his unsteadiness. That has a profound real life impact on people, as well as making people uncertain about the response. And I think, you know, that's not what you're going to have with Joe Biden. Let, let me ask a, a a specific version of this, too. So if I was critiquing Donald Trump here, and I don't think it's going to be a huge surprise to listeners that I'm not incredibly impressed by his response, one of the things that has always scared me about him in a crisis, and I think it has very much con- come true in this pandemic, is that he's a very poor information processor. He does not take in new information well. He does not believe information. He does not want to believe. He does not listen to things that are contrary to what he sees as his interests. Um, he knows a couple of things, you know, or, or thinks he knows them, right? The world is zero sum, immigrants are bad, et cetera. And so if he can fit it into that, right? Stock market should be high, borders should be closed. He will fit it into that. But as things become counterintuitive to him, he's a lot of trouble updating. Barack Obama, by contrast, had this almost computer-like quality. He was an incredible information processor. He read all the briefing books. He could talk more smoothly about things than a lot of his policy experts could. You would ask him about counterarguments. He would know all of them. Where does Joe Biden fall on that spectrum? How does he absorb new information when things are very fast moving? And what does he do with it when the information um, is bad or it is uncertain or you need to work off of uh, less of it than you would like to have? Well, I'd say, first of all, I think people underestimate the extent to which he is a traditional information processor in a way that's that's similar but not like Obama in these ways. Uh, he is a voracious reader. Uh, all I've worked for him, I worked for him way back in the Senate. I've worked for him on and off for 30 years. And what I will say is that uh, when you come into a meeting with Joe Biden, the first three or four questions are things based on the briefing materials that he's read. And he's read them all. And uh, and he reads them very carefully. And so he absorbs a lot of information by reading. Uh, and that's very similar to Obama, where he's a little different than Obama is. He really likes to discuss things. He really likes the the back and forth. Obama, uh, you'd come into a meeting with Obama. He'd read the stuff. He had three or four questions. You know, he, he didn't like a big kind of uh, debate in front of him. He liked people to argue point A, point B. He would decide A, B, whatever. Whereas Biden likes to iterate uh, orally uh, with a group of people. And if you come into the meeting with uh, option A and option B, uh, he's likely over the course of a discussion develop option C as, as kind of he talks to people and kind of uh, and kind of puts things together. Uh, I'd also say, look, he is also clearly so on top of those traditional ways and less traditional ways of processing information. 
uh, I would say he also is obviously moved by people and the examples of people. And this is where he's most different than Trump, the level of compassion uh, that he has and how uh, the, 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 the impacts on individuals really, really touch him. I think anyone who listened to the debate on Sunday night, again, whether you were a Sanders supporter or a Biden supporter, I think he had to be moved by the story the vice president told of a friend of his who was stuck outside the window of a nursing home trying to communicate with a loved one through the window of a nursing home. And there's something about that example that touched people and made this situation poignant, made clear about the risk to senior citizens and whatnot. And so, you know, I think that he combines that kind of emotional element, that anecdotal element with uh, with a lot of reading, a lot of studying and a lot of uh, theoretical thinking on these things and, and hopefully brings them all together to his decision making. One thing I know a lot of people fear is that uh, he's a 77 year old man now is that over decades he's lost a step. You're somebody who's with him and you've known him for a very long time. You're with him in in private circumstances. Uh, obviously, you support him. So I know on some of you're going to say yes to this question. But but to people who wonder about this, who wonder if he's still up to the job, what would you say to them? You know, I, I obviously think he is and very strongly so. But people can watch for themselves. Like people watched him stand there for two hours and parry back and forth with Bernie Sanders on uh, 500 different issues, the first half of it being how he would a- approach the coronavirus situation. And I will say, I think if you listen to the first half hour, 40 minutes of that debate, he answered questions from three journalists about the coronavirus thing. You got better answers in that half hour than you gotten from Donald Trump in the entire eight weeks that preceded that. And so people should judge that for themselves. They see him out there uh, every day, a little less so right now because the coronavirus thing, but certainly every day over the course of the campaign in 11 debates against a more voracious field than any primary candidate has faced, a larger field, a tough field. And I think his his actions, his conduct in the campaign have proven that he is not only up to the job, but up to really exceeding and doing well at the job, succeeding and doing well at the job. Uh, Ron Klein, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. I know you've got a lot on your plate right now between your own podcast, working on working on the working on the infections, uh, working on the coronavirus, and and advising the vice president. Um, let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is: What are three books you would recommend? And in particular, given the time, I'd be interested if you've read anything on pandemics, on um, infectious disease that you found particularly helpful, and you would uh, recommend to people who are trying to get any kind of historical handle or more conceptual handle on this crisis. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things. Mike Osterholm, who's a great disease expert, wrote a book maybe two years ago called uh, American Pandemic. That is a, a, a really a good book, a little scary at this moment, but but very insightful. Uh, John Barry's book, uh, I think it's called The Great Epidemic, about the 1918 swine flu epidemic, is a very uh, good read in this space. Again, a little scary, but a reminder of how good and bad choices make a difference. I mean, I think the one thing about Barry's book is it shows that uh, diseases are caused by nature. Uh, The coronavirus isn't Donald Trump's fault. The Spanish flu wasn't someone's fault. But how we respond to them is something we decide and has a big impact uh, on people. And so I guess those would be the two things at the top of my reading list right now. Ron Klain, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Ron Klain for being here. I want to say something here as we end the show, something that's been on my mind a lot. There is a tremendous amount of discussion right now about social distancing. It's very important. Um, If you are not doing it, please start. But I assume you are doing it. What I want to make sure people are thinking about, too, is social solidarity. Somebody, Somebody on Twitter made the point that it would be better if we were calling for physical distancing and social solidarity, because that is what we need. 
we cannot and it will not be sustainable to have months and months where people are isolated, where they're lonely. Social distancing doesn't mean we're not in touch with each other. What we actually need to be doing, and this is particularly true for the elderly, for people who are differently abled, for people who are very vulnerable already to loneliness and isolation, which by themselves are extraordinarily powerful and dangerous health risks. Um, they increase dementia, they increase all-cause mortality, cancer, cardiovascular disease, um, all kinds of mental health risks, suicidal ideation, everything. Don't just be distancing. Also, please be reaching out. Find out if people in your neighborhood need help, um, need you to get them groceries. But to the people you know, you know, maybe your parents, maybe older friends or disabled relatives, call them, FaceTime them. Don't just think about how to stay away from people. Think about how as you're physically distancing from people, how can you also socially reach out to them? And what are maybe ways you can reach out to people you don't know? Because by definition, it is the people who are most vulnerable are the ones who do not already have a network that is easy to activate. Um, but this is going to be hard. And one of the ways has come up in episodes like the Vivek Murthy episode on loneliness. One of the ways actually to feel a little bit better in moments like this, to alleviate your own feelings of powerlessness, of loneliness, of fear, is to reach out to others, to help others. There's nothing that will feel better right now than being of service. So look for ways to be of service. Um, if you have great ideas of ways to be of service, maybe email them to us at EzraKleinShow uh, at box.com or go to the subreddit um, at reddit.com slash r slash EzraKlein, I think it is, and put them there. I'll try to keep sharing them. I want the show to be both pro-social distancing, but pro-social at a time when we desperately, desperately need it. Um, and as I said at the beginning, if there are voices you want to hear, conversations you think need to be had here that would help you, that you think would help others, please let us know at EzraKleinShowAdVox.com. Thank you, of course, to Roche Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Both of them are working uh, under <laughs> unusual conditions, as am I, so I'm very grateful to them. Um, the Ezra Klein Show is Vox Media podcast production.